It was like two lives, you know, going outside of our house, going to school. I did dance. My brother raced motocross. We did all these things that on the outside it looked like you were, you know, good to go. But at home it was like completely different. It was kind of a volatile relationship because my dad was an alcoholic um, and my parents fought a lot because he would come home drunk or not come home at all and then when he came home um, it was just all out arguing and fighting and um, you know holes in the wall, scary situations you know. And then my brother and I were kind of like the the byproduct of that where he would kind of be in the middle of it trying to break up their fight and I would just be in my room kind of hiding and crying because I didn't understand what was happening. The next day it was like nothing ever happened, go on and we didn't talk about it. It was tough. We were born in California, but we moved to Muncie when I was about four and a half years old. And um, when I turned five, my parents got a divorce. My mom made some different choices in her life and um, kind of walked out on us and left us with our dad. And she said that she thought it was because we'd have a better life. So there was a lot of resentment and hate toward her. My dad um, is from Mexico. He was Catholic, raised Catholic, um, but when we moved here, he wasn't very comfortable with English and he couldn't find a Spanish-speaking church to attend, so he didn't go to church with us, and I would usually go by myself because my sisters weren't so sure, and I accepted God as my Savior for the first time, so that was a good thing, but once that happened, I started noticing what I consider hypocrisy that I saw going on, and people really weren't who they pretended to be on Sundays. Um, I just didn't want to want to be a part of the church anymore, so I kind of stepped away from that. I didn't do very well at all in school. I had low self-esteem because I didn't get very good grades. But the very first time that I tasted alcohol, I just felt different when I, when I drank it. It was just like a painkiller. I would drink just to to feel good, or if you know, if I had a bad day or whatever, and I didn't think about uh, the problems that were going on in my life. And, you know, I did. I never did really face things head on. Um, it just it continued on into later on in life. I knew God was there, but I just, like, ran away from it because I was like, I can't ever, you know, I just constantly mess up. I can't ever live up to this expectation. So I just started doing, you know, bad things with experimenting with drinking and hanging out with kind of the wrong crowd and just trying to escape in different ways. And then in high school, it got really bad to, like, my drinking was really intense, and I started using prescription drugs um, because I had really bad anxiety, and then I started abusing those, 
and I was diagnosed with lupus um, when I was 15 and then that just made it worse like it just sent me further into being depressed and trying to escape. When I turned um, 16 I got a job and um, had some of my own money and I didn't have any Christian friends really that were helping me along the way and my dad was really strict on us and I was tired of feeling awkward or alone or like we were weird so I started kind of doing um, just what the crowd was doing and um, started dating um, my junior year of high school and that's kind of where it went downhill from there because then I just went from one unhealthy um, boyfriend-girlfriend relationship to another. I had always signed cards at school about um, staying pure until you were married and things like that. Um, and as soon as I started dating, that kind of went out the window. I met Brian um, my junior year in high school. By the end of his senior year, I was ready to move out, and I had mentioned to him, hey, I think I'm going to move out of my dad's house. He's like, let's move out together. I was probably, I think I was 26 years old, and I'd been partying um, a lot. And I did meet my wife, Judy, and um, I didn't know how really to be a, a husband, and I stopped growing when I started drinking. So I didn't really mature, and I wasn't mature in the marriage either. It got to the point where I was um, at looking for something that um, was going to satisfy whatever I was needing at the time. I I ended up having having an affair, and uh, my wife caught me in um, in the lies and. Um, she kicked me out of the house and I lived a lot of times in my truck and hotel rooms and things like that. We had lived together for six weeks and um, found out that we were expecting and I was so scared. I didn't want to tell my dad. Um, the day that we found out, we actually got into a huge fight. Um, he broke some stuff in the apartment, and I was ready to throw his music recording studio stuff out the window. We made it through it um, and had our oldest son, Brayson, um, and continued to live together. Um, but it was very unhealthy, and we were fighting in front of Brayson all of the time. The older he got, he was affected by it too, and I remember seeing him just cry and cry. Mentally, I was just done with the relationship. We just lived together, pretty much. Um, and I actually started praying that God would just let him know that this wasn't going to work and that he just had to leave. Um, I prayed for that for a very long time um, because it wasn't working, and in my head, I was already gone. One night, I got really extremely sick, and um, I actually I heard a voice that said that you have a family. I drove actually to my house, and uh, I knocked on the back door, and Judy actually she came outside, and uh, the pain get, got worse and worse. Well, I. I, I did leave the house and went to the hospital, and uh, they admitted me for a pancreatitis. 
One night I just, I took my entire bottle of prescription anxiety medicine. And I just remember waking up the next day, not really believing that I was waking up and um, just thinking, this is it, like I can't, I can't do this anymore. I hated myself. I just hated that I did the things that I said I wasn't gonna do. There were definitely times that I thought I, I didn't want to live anymore. It takes a lot of guts to share your faith story. And these three people showed an amazing amount of courage to simply share their story. And we're going to look at the rest of their story here in a couple of minutes. But I just kind of thought it might uh, be helpful to them if we showed some appreciation to them uh, for showing, uh, sharing their story. So let's give my hand. Well, happy Easter to all of you. We're so glad that you chose to uh, hang out with us today. And today I want to talk to you about what is the most famous walk in the history of the world and what I think is clearly the most famous walk in the Bible. It happened on Resurrection Day, 33 A.D., and we're going to read that story together. It'll come up on the side screens. And then also I'm going to make some comments kind of along the way. So let's start with this Easter story. Now that same day, Resurrection Day, two of them, two disciples, that is, two friends of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, about how long does it take for the average person to walk seven miles? Anyone want to take a guess? Some of you would have a heart attack if you walked seven miles, right? But if you go about three and a half miles an hour, you would, it would take you about two hours, okay? So two hours. Uh, trivia buffs out there. Anybody know uh, who took the longest walk? ever recorded in human history. Anybody know? Look to the side screens. It's that guy. His name is George Megan, who in 1977 walked from the southern tip of South America to the northern tip of Alaska, 19,000 miles on that walk. Why did he do it? I have no idea. Well, Let's look at the rest of the text. In verse 14, it says this. They were talking with each other about everything that had just happened. Now, in a moment, we're going to find that one of the walkers was named Cleopas. And Cleopas was a guy's name. Now, we don't know uh, the other walker, whether it was uh, a woman or a man. But I'm going to suggest to you, it's my opinion, that it was a woman. Do you know why? Because it said they were talking to each other uh, on this walk. Uh, two guys, if they're walking together, you know, they don't talk. They, my opinion. Okay. Verse 19. As they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up to them, 
but they were kept from recognizing them. Now, how did God arrange that? I mean, think about it, folks. Jesus is the most recognizable person in all of Jerusalem and of all Israel at this time. Everybody has recognized him. And so it's something God arranged. Now, how did he do that? I have no idea. I don't know. So Jesus asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? It's a fair question. They're walking and uh, here's the question. But what's interesting, when he asked this question, they stop walking. They stood still, their faces downcast. In other words, they're dejected. They're devastated. One of them, named Cleopas, asked Jesus, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, obviously, what he's referring to is the arrest and then the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. It's as as if Cleopas is coming up Uh, to one of these walkers and going, dude, what's up? I mean, are you kidding me? Have you been living under a rock or something? You don't know what's been going on? And Jesus doesn't go off on him and like, dude, like I'm the person, you know? He doesn't say anything like that at all. He just asks a question. What things? What's been going on? You tell me. So he waits for them to talk. Cleopas says, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed uh, handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem or free Israel. That's what they were hoping for, that he was going to come in and take away the Roman regime goes on. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen, a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Which in other words means They thought the body was stolen or they thought it was desecrated. So how does Jesus respond to these dejected travelers? I mean, does he say, hey, I understand your pain. I know what you're going through. I can I pray for you? Not really, folks. This is what he says. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? It's like whammo, bam. They're like, dude, can't you like give us a little compassion here? You thought Jesus would be a little bit softer, but he's not. He comes straight forward. And then verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus talked with them all the way on these seven miles. Now, quick question. How long did Jesus have to give his sermon on that walk? Two hours. Settle in, folks. You know, what is fair uh, is fair. 
don't leave. Some of you are leaving. Don't, no, don't, don't do that. Well, eventually, uh, they arrive at the home of one of these travelers, and Jesus gives indication that he's going to actually just keep on walking. And verse 28, I love it. Jesus continued on as if he was going on further. It's as if Jesus saying, okay, you guys done with this conversation? I'm okay with that. You won't hurt my feelings. If this is enough, this is enough. You need to listen to this, folks. Jesus will never force himself into your life. He didn't force his way in on that day. He doesn't force his way in today. And he will not force himself any day. Verse 28. And they approached the village to which they were going. Jesus continued on as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly... Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, remember the Lord's Supper had just happened. He took bread and broke it and began to give it to them. Verse 31. Then their eyes were opened. It's like they had these scales on their eyes and they see him break bread because they'd seen him do that before. All of a sudden now the scales come off and they recognize him. And as soon as they recognize him, look what the text says. And he disappeared from their sight. Verse 32 concludes. They ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And after these two walkers finished this time, they run back to Jerusalem. And when they run, they run into the house where all the disciples are. And they're like, Jesus is alive. Like, he's really alive. We just had a two-hour sermon with him. We walked seven miles. He broke bread in our house. He's alive. We've seen him. We're eyewitnesses. Folks, this is the most amazing walk in the Bible. There is no walk that compares to it. So let me unpack just a couple of things from this walk. Now, first of all, you have to realize, folks, the reason that they're really bummed out and the reason that they're kind of upset and devastated is because they thought Jesus was going to come and overthrow the Roman government. This Roman government had been a nasty regime, like Nazis, and they had controlled everything. The disciples saw Jesus came to overthrow the government. Their entire lives were filled with Romans being around them. And they were sick and tired of seeing Roman soldiers. Soldiers by their house. Soldiers in their yard. Soldiers on the streets. And to top this off, the Romans actually taxed the Jews more than anyone else. And they barely could even survive. And they're sick and tired of seeing these guys. They wanted them gone. And then all of a sudden, this young leader shows up. And he's fantastic. He's smart. He's trustworthy. He's a good communicator. He's fearless. And to top it all off, folks, he does supernatural miracles. Like, 
He is who the leader should be. They thought to themselves, He is the one. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting on for 700 years. And He's going to make our life easy. He's going to make our life more comfortable. But then He died. Folks, it's no big spiritual reason why these two disciples were down in the dumps, but rather... The disciples were dejected because their dreams had been dashed. They thought he was the one. You see, when they said redeem Israel, that word redeem means to set free. And what they thought was that he was going to set free the oppression that they experienced from Rome. They thought that Jesus came to turn Rome upside down. But Jesus said, I just didn't come for a little piece of the pie, which is Rome. I came for the whole thing. I want it all. I've come to turn the world upside down. And Jesus shares with them all of this on this unforgettable walk. You know, it got me to thinking this week. What do you talk about? When you go on walks with people. Why do I talk about when I go on walks with people? And so I started thinking about the most important people in my life. And why do I talk with them about? Well, first of all, I thought of my dad. When my dad and I, when we take walks, we talk sports. Any sports. I remember one time he brought up curling one time. And I'm like... Dad, curling's not a sport. Some of you have no idea what that is. Google it, okay? Go ahead. When I go with walks with my mom, she always talks about family and her grandbabies and how much she loves them. Now, when I go on walks with my kids, uh, we don't really talk. They, they just ask a bunch of questions. Here's some of the questions that they've asked recently. Why do we have to take a bath tonight? We don't stink. That's a good question, right? Or, Dad, why do you have hair growing in your ears? Mom doesn't. Or this is my favorite recently. Dad, did God create the boogers in our nose? My kids are messed up. I mean, they just. Now, when I go on walks with my wife, I always think it's going to be like a romantic walk. But what I find is that I never get to talk. She just talks the whole time. And usually it's about how hot I am. You know, it's embarrassing. It's like really embarrassing. You know. Well, it's kind of walking. And talking got me thinking this week that if Jesus took a walk with you, what would he talk about? Now, as Jesus walked with these two disciples, we know what he talked about. Verse 27 tells us this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained, he talked to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, when that scripture says... And beginning with Moses, what he's asking is, what did Moses write? 
Well, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, including the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And Jesus takes them all the way back to the first chapter of the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the water and the skies, the plants and all vegetation, all the animals. And after all of these things, if you read the text, it says, and it was good. But then it comes to God creating human beings. And God adds one word. It's up here on the screen. Let's read it out loud together. God saw what he made and it was very good. Now, what's the word before good? What is it? So it says when he created human beings, it wasn't just good. It was very good. You see, folks, God sees us differently than every other uh, item or thing that he created. We are not just good when we're created. We're very good. Why is that? Because we're made in the image of God. Every time you look in the mirror, the image of God is reflected. Why? It's not me. Scripture says it. Verse 27. So God created people in his own image. God patterned them after himself. Male and female, he created them. So just as Jesus walked with these two disciples, I have a feeling that if he walked with you, this is what he would say. You were created as a masterpiece. You were created as a masterpiece. Why? Because you were made in the image of God. If you would, I'd like you to turn to the person beside you. And for some of you, it might be painful. But turn to the person beside you and just say, you are a masterpiece. Okay? Now, I know some of you were about ready to kill the person when you walked in, right? It took everything to say that. But you really are. You are a masterpiece. You're a Monet. You're a Rembrandt. You're a one of a kind. Now, for some of you, we're glad God only made one, okay? But you're one of a kind. This is what the Bible says. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are God's masterpiece. You were created by God to be loved by God. And God is constantly creating something new through Jesus Christ so that you can do good in this world. This is the only problem. And the problem is, is that sometimes we're not satisfied with being God's masterpiece. You know why? Because we want to be the master. We don't want to be the created thing. We want to be the creator. We want to be master. We want to be the master of our lives. We want to be the master of our house. And Ever since God created human beings, the temptation has always been present. We don't want to follow God. We want to be God. 
And that was the very first sin that happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, the sin is not that they ate some fruit. The sin was that they wanted to be God. They wanted the same power. They didn't want to be a masterpiece. They wanted to be their own master. And get this. Within three generations of Adam and Eve, from that original sin, were introduced into the human race. And what's introduced are things like this. Hatred, violence, envy, polygamy, deceitfulness, drunkenness, immorality, and murder. And from there, it's like the human condition goes further south that by the time that you get to the sixth chapter, just six chapters, God makes this observation of the human race. This is what he says. The Lord saw that the human beings on earth were very sick and that everything they thought about was evil. The next verse has God grieving this fact. And when he saw it, the scripture says his heart was filled with pain. God's heart was broken. It's as if God was saying, this was not the way it was supposed to be. This is not what human beings were supposed to do. You know, I think that on the walk to Emmaus, and I think if Jesus took a walk with you, one, he would say, you were created to be a masterpiece. But the second thing he would say is you are ill-equipped to be your own master. You're ill-equipped to be your own master. And every time that we try to be our own God, every time that we try to run the show, every time that we try to make our own rules, we make a royal mess of it. Because we were not created to be the master. We were created to be the masterpiece. So back to the walk. Jesus is walking with these two guys. He's telling the whole story of Moses. And the two disciples are listening and they're wanting to know, well, what were God's options then? And I think there were three options. I mean, once human beings decide they wanted to be their own gods, what did God have? What was his options? The first is God could just turn his back on humanity. Just say, forget them all. Just let them self-destruct. People are good at that, aren't they? Second choice was God could have eradicated all human beings. Just wipe them up, blow them up, get rid of all of them. Or the third option, which I believe Jesus would share with you and he would have shared on that road to Emmaus, is this, to redeem and restore fallen people. That you are worth being redeemed, set free, bought back, and restored. Now, folks, this was the riskiest option. It's the option that was going to cost God the most. But it's the option he chooses. And at the centerpiece of this option that he chooses, the way he pulls it off, folks, the way he pulls it off, 
takes your breath away. Everyone who truly understands this for the rest of human history are amazed at the choice that he made. Now, this centerpiece actually happened 700 years before Jesus even came to planet Earth. Listen to the words of this guy by the name of Isaiah. He was a prophet. God spoke to him, and this is what he wrote down. 700 years before. But he, that is Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that we deserved was put on him. And by his stripes, or by his beatings, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. I'm raising my hand, folks, because I have gone astray. There have been multiple times in my life in which I have ignored God, I have pushed Him to the ditch, and I wanted to do my own thing. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned from his own way. I have. And yet, the Lord laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity, the sins, the wrongdoings of us all. I bet my house today that when Jesus was walking on that road, on Emmaus, he spoke this scripture to these two disciples. Because it is the central concept of Christianity. It is what differentiates Christianity from every other world religion. Now, if you would, what I'd like you to imagine, just for a second, is that my left hand here represents you and me. And this box represents the sin in our life. So that's us, and this is all of our sin. Your sin, my sin. This other hand represents Jesus. Scripture tells us that Jesus never sinned. He never had any sin. He shouldn't have to be punished for anything because he never sinned. And this is what the scripture says, that a transfer took place. That God the Father piled up all of our sin onto Jesus. And if you look at Jesus, you think that stinks for him. He didn't do anything wrong. He was perfect. He never sinned. And he took all of it on himself. But what do you notice about us now? This hand. It's free. There's nothing weighing it down. There's nothing holding it down. It's free. It's forgiven. It's cleansed. That's what Jesus did For everybody. Not just Christians. He did it for everybody. Now the question is, why though? I mean, like, why would somebody do that? 
Jesus tells us. John 3.16 This is how much God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only Son. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in Him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. You can be restored. God loved you so much that He gave His one and only Son with arms outstretched on a cross, on a blood-stained cross. And He would have died just for you if you were the only person in the world. Because when His number was called, He didn't get a chance to choose. He just chose everyone from that moment until He returns again. And you and I, the benefit that we get is we're free. We're forgiven. We're restored. You see, Jesus doesn't come to you and go, you're a little bit too messy. You are too messy. He says you are worth being redeemed and restored. You are worth being made new and free. Folks, you will never understand the fullness of life until you surrender your will and your show to Christ. You know, today, some of you, you're carrying a backpack on your back that looks like this. You know what's stuffed inside that? All your guilt and all your shame. And you've been carrying this year after year after year. And it gets heavier each and every year. And your shoulders were not built to have to carry something like that. It'll kill you. But if you come into a right relationship with God and you understand that Jesus died for all of your sins, this is what happened. He takes the backpack off. He says, don't carry it anymore. Give it to me. I'll lighten the load. You're free. Some of us have a deep need for our stained consciences to be cleansed. Some of us have done horrible things. We've hurt people that are close to us. We've done illegal things. We've done immoral things. We can't walk out into a sunshiny day and see the beauty in it because we have our eyesight that has been shaded by a stained conscience. But Scripture says that if you are rightly related to God and you understand what Jesus Christ did for you, that you can take the shades off and you can walk into the sunshiny day filled with a clean and a pure conscience. And folks, when you see it for the first time, you'll go, I can't believe it. Life is so different because my conscience is clear. It's clean. But I'm telling you, folks, only Jesus can clean your conscience. Some of us are drowning with anxiety about the future. You fear losing your job. You fear losing your house. 
You fear losing your marriage. You fear losing your kids. Scripture tells us that God can actually calm any anxiety in your life. It doesn't say that you're not going to have trouble in this life. It just says that when you do, you won't get so freaked out about it. You'll be calm. Raging waters around you, but you're calm. Because He will guide you. He walks with you. Some of us are terrified of dying. You know, I've been to a lot of hospital rooms as a pastor. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have died while I've stood by their bed. And people die very differently from each other. I've seen people who are far from God. That when they die... They're frantic. They start grabbing lampshades. I've seen them do it. They start grabbing their sheets. They start grabbing people. They can't let go of this world because they are terrified of the next life. And I've seen people before, people who've experienced horrible cancers, tumors, everything. And I've seen people who are connected to Christ, die with a smile on their face. I remember one old lady. She was singing hymns to God. That was the last thing before she died. And I've seen people with a peace that surpasses human understanding. Just like into the next life. Folks, that's only available to people who have turned to Christ and accepted Him as Lord. So I'm just going to come right out and say it right here and right now. If you have never experienced that before in your life, maybe it's possibly time. I mean, maybe the reason that you're here this Sunday is not because someone twisted your arm or they said you will take you out to eat or you got to come because we're having the big family dinner. Maybe God's whispering to you right now or within the next few minutes. He's tapping you on the shoulder. He's been doing this. He's saying it's time to surrender. In fact, if you're wondering, what must I do to have a walk with Jesus? It comes down to this. I must surrender to Him as Lord. That's it. I must surrender to Him as Lord. It's time to take a step out of the master role or the CE role and say, God, I surrender. I surrender To your love, I surrender to your guidance. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your wisdom is greater than mine. I'm done fighting with you, God. I'm done pushing you away. I'm done believing uh, an arrogant thought that I can do my life better than you can. I surrender. I wave a white flag of surrender. And you know, the thing is that I've noticed is that every person who has ever done this before... And they finally surrender to Christ. They'll say, I just wish I would have surrendered earlier. I wasted so many years. I've had people come up to me before and they'll say, Chris, I've wasted decades. I heard so many people along the way. I just wish I would have surrendered earlier. I'm curious this morning, how many of you are ready 
to surrender to Christ. Or maybe you surrendered once in your life, and then you kind of took the CEO chair back, the master chair, and said, no, I think I can do it better myself. Now, some of you are asking, well, how does this happen? How do human beings do this kind of thing? Well, remember the stories of people that we saw at the beginning of the celebration? Well, there's more to their story. And maybe we'll learn about surrender. Let's take a look at the side screens. I ended up going to um, uh, Fairbanks for rehab. The inflammation was so bad in my body that, I mean, I could hardly walk. And I knew that I knew that uh, things definitely needed to change. And there was a lot of a lot of praying. I just felt God tell me that we didn't make it through five years of fighting and arguing um, to just call it quits. God worked in me to confess um, all of the things that I had been doing wrong and my mistakes in our relationship to Brian. And um, we were able to start working through some of that and we worked through it together. I I was in depression for a couple weeks, definitely after that, kind of getting off of the pills and just how much I had taken, like, really affected me. And that was kind of like a wake-up call because I could have easily died. God was watching out for me and had different plans for me than I had for myself, thankfully. It's not been easy, really, none of it, it's been very easy for me, but I believe that God, that Jesus died on the cross for for my sins. I have a new meaning for life. If I'm doing things that I think is going to please God, then that's what I want to do now. I, I have been sober for six and a half years. It's, it's a total difference. You know, I used to do those things to escape, and now I just, I don't have a need for any of that anymore. I just turn, you know, things over to God, and I've forgiven and reconciled with all my family, and I don't hold any resentment towards them for everything that's happened. So it's an amazing feeling. <laughs> so we were baptized Easter of 2011, and... July of 2011, um, Brian and I got married. God has worked a lot through um, in us so that we could be different. Um, we're not perfect. We're not perfect parents. We're not a perfect married couple or even perfect siblings. But it's been drastic because it's affected my relationship with Brian, with my kids, with my siblings, with my parents. Um, so it's been huge. there was a uh, cloth in your program when you walked in today. I'd like you to pull that out and also uh, the black marker that was on your chair. If you could just pull those two things out real quick. We're going to invite you to write something on that cloth. If you didn't get one or you don't have a program, just raise your hand. Uh, We'll get those to you. And I would strongly encourage you to place this on top of 
your program. Because if you don't, it's going to bleed through onto your Easter clothes. And mama ain't going to be happy. But if it bleeds through your Easter clothes and you come whining to me, I already warned you, okay? Now seriously, Easter is all about new beginnings. And scripture tells us the scripture tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is a power that be, can be given to you. Anyone who asks it. All new futures begin with a fresh surrender. Let me say that again. All new futures begin with a fresh surrender. I have no doubt that some of you here today have a choice to make. And I think it's one of three choices of something that you can write down on this sheet. The first choice for some of you is just writing the word surrender. I'm fully surrendered to you, God. Maybe it's time for you to just mark this word down, surrender, with Easter 2013 or 2014. Some of you did it 2013, so. Easter 2014, surrender. I'm asking God to simply guide my future. I don't know everything, God, but what I do know today, I want to say I'm surrendered to you. Just write it down, Easter 2014, sign your name. Now, for others of you, maybe you surrendered at some point in your life, but then you took the CEO chair back. You took the master chair back. And what you need to do is to re-surrender. And I was thinking about it this week. That's what I wrote on mine in the earlier celebration. I just wrote down, I'm re-surrendering to you. Easter 2014, Chris Bunch, fresh surrender. Now, for some of you, just to be honest, if you're here and you're being honest, please be. That's what we want to, that's the kind of church we want to be. But some of you, you just have to write, I'm still in charge. I'm still in charge. I don't know why you would want to write that, but you might. But I just want to ask you then, come and talk to me six months from now, a year from now, two years from now. How's that working out for you? Because what I found is it doesn't work out very well. You just kind of make it through life. And so I'm going to give you 45 seconds right now just to write this down. What would you write down? This is a moment between you and God. No one else is looking. Just you and God.